Hello, hello, and welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Gianna. And I'm Bianca. And this week's Art Pop Talk, we sit down with Olivia Huffstetter, a doctoral candidate in art education. We talk about how Olivia is integrating art history and technology into the classroom, and how educators can make use of social media to teach visual culture and social justice. Olivia also talks with us about the Instagram account Tabloid Art History, showing us that the arts and pop culture can teach us more than we think. Let's get started. Well, Bianca, my dear, I'm very excited to get in today's interview with Olivia. We are recording this intro today on January 7th, but we recorded this interview with Olivia actually before the holidays. So it's been a hot minute since we've actually sat down and spoke with her, um, but it was really fun to get to go back and listen to that interview. Yeah, I'm so excited for you guys to hear the interview and while we don't want to take too much time in the intro today we want to get right into our session with Olivia like Gianna said we are recording this on January 7th and you'll hopefully be listening to this sometime um, on next Tuesday the following Tuesday and yesterday January 6th was a a really another just another hard day in our country and it it's been a hard day a hard time in this country for a lot of people for a very long time and I don't I have so many thoughts but at the same time it's I I don't you know it's almost unexpected like at this point but going back to what Gianna said her and I re-listened to Olivia's interview before we started recording this intro for you guys and it felt so poignant and like what Olivia will talk to you guys about with art education just really seemed to resonate with me after the events of yesterday. Gianna, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that too. Absolutely. As you guys will hear in the interview and more towards the end when we really start looking and talking about images created by tabloid art history, but those images and those visual comparisons are created by a cultural and political awareness, a pop culture Mm -hmm. awareness to what is going on to be able to make those images and those comparisons. And as Olivia will talk about, that is what she got her students to do um, in her PhD program. So I was thinking about yesterday's events and a lot of the conversations that were started yesterday and just thinking about what would happen if these people at these events were people of color. What would happen if, if these people were individuals who were black and you can't Mm -hmm. help but make these comparisons to what we saw during this mob versus what we saw during the black lives matter movement and Mm -hmm. how we were confronted with law enforcement and and police officials and that idea of just being aware and it's almost it's interesting to say but in a way taking in that information and in just watching the news 
yeah. is a, also a form of informal learning. And that's yeah. one of the things Olivia talks about. Although in our interview, you know, we are going to talk about more the formalities of learning in a classroom and what that is like, but also being aware that we hope to create conversations much like tabloid art history lays out for us. And mm-hmm. our goal of the show is to make us think more about art and be aware of that and how it influences everyday life. You know, we, we've talked about that so much, but the bigger issue is how we can use um, analytical thinking strategies that can be applicable in everyday life. And when we saw the events on bold yesterday it is quite astonishing that you form these comparisons in your head Mm -hmm. and then you pop on social media and everybody else is comparing those same things and thinking about the what if of it all yeah you kept hearing this phrase from some elected officials and like pundits and news anchors about how words matter and words have mattered this this whole time and for some strange reason as if we haven't been outraged for the past four years but also people have been outraged and you know before this obviously but I was thinking about this this idea that oh his words matter his words matter and clearly we're saying like this very I don't know I don't know how to describe it in in the moment as we're recording other than strange culmination of that but as I'm taking in all these images that we're seeing from the news and you're, you know, you're seeing photographers and photojournalists out there thinking about how images matter and how like just these types of images we're taking in can reflect exactly what you mentioned too, Gianna, as well. It's like, we're not just thinking about how words and actions matter, but like we saw the images compared almost immediately of Mm -hmm. police on the Capitol during Black Lives Matter protests and then police at the Capitol yesterday. And Mm -hmm. also, you know, people taking photographs with police officers in the building during Mm -hmm. a terrorist attack. Mm -hmm. How people were taking photos and posting them on Instagram, terrorists taking those photos of themselves raiding the Capitol and then writing images that and posting them on social media that say, like, well, we never back down. Right. So that's something that after watching that and thinking about that yesterday and listening back to back through the interview with Olivia today, it just it it almost I don't know, it it feels in some way a a good thing to have this conversation with Olivia at this time about education and education of images and intake of images just as we are thinking about the intake of words as yeah. well so and and you need to question those images and and you need to be critical of what information you are taking by the media like those things exist on both sides of the spectrum and like we all need to be critical about that and things like this podcast can help fuel those investigations and make you think think in that lens more critically where it's not such a it's not a thing you're going to have to work so hard for um if that makes sense in the long run like my hope is that 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 becomes right that becomes Mm -hmm. more natural um 
Right. Because you're doing it anyway. We're doing it anyway. And we're just processing and intaking all of this constant information. And I think that's also, this is going to be a long intro, but also leading back to this idea of like our numbness to the insanity, not taking our numbness for granted and, Mm -hmm. and finding a way to think about and and just just like you said, Gianna, like mm-hmm. finding a way to be more cognizant of of what we're we're already intaking, like mm-hmm. we're already receiving those messages. So mm-hmm. this is a really a really fantastic conversation with my dear friend Olivia. So I really I really hope that you guys enjoy it. Yes, absolutely, Bianca. All right. So. Whew. On that note, I'm going to take a breath and I'm going to read for you Olivia's bio. Olivia Hofstetter graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in History and Art History from Southwestern University in 2016. She graduated with a Master's of Arts in Art History from Oklahoma State University in 2018. Her thesis discusses how European travel literature and other illustrated ethnographic documents from the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries have contributed to the misrepresentation of indigenous Latin American cultures, with an emphasis on representations of Aztec culture. Currently, Olivia is ABD in the Arts Administration, Education, and Policy Doctoral Program at The Ohio State University Program, specializing in art education. She is an instructor of record for the Visual Culture Investigating Diversity and Social Justice course. Honestly, I can't wait for you guys to hear about this course because I just want her to be my professor. (laughs) Olivia's interests make her a wandering academic who is continuously interacting with different areas of focus. She likes the idea of passion and being challenged by a topic, acting as one's inspiration. Along with the frame of mind that we can learn more about something specific, the more we aspire to learn about everything. As you'll hear in our interview, in her experience, stepping out of your research bubble and trying something new can really allow you to engage with the process in a more impactful way. These words. Amazing. (laughs) And now, here's our Art Pop Talk with Olivia Huffstetter. Today, we are joined by an extra special guest, you guys. I am so excited to have my former roommate, actually, for a summer in Santa Fe, and a very, very good friend and colleague from my graduate years at Oklahoma State. So everyone, please welcome Olivia Huffstetter. Thank you so much for being here. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm really happy um, to get to talk to y'all. Um, I was really excited when I saw that y'all are starting this back in the beginning of the year. And so I'm really excited to finally be able to sit down with y'all after we've been going back and forth all year. And so, yeah, Yay. I'm looking forward to talking. <laughs> 
So right now, Olivia, you are in school working on your PhD. Before we get into more about your work and really why we're so excited to talk to you today, can you give us an update on how your semesters and your studies have been during COVID? I want to definitely get into the technological aspect of your research work a little bit later on, but it's been kind of fascinating to see how different people in the art world are working through this in various ways. Yeah, so I've actually been pretty fortunate um, in that with my own studies, um, they were relatively unaffected. Um, so that's because back in the spring, um, right when everything um, got really crazy in March, um, I was actually only in one in-person class at the time. Oh, wow. Um, the other credits that I was enrolled in, um, one was already offered completely online, and then the other one was um, independent study. And okay. so in terms of my own studies, I haven't had to deal with a whole lot of thinking about new ways of me being a student, um, mm. because now... Um, you know, I'm ABD, so that's all I'm doing is writing my dissertation and doing data analysis. Um, and so in contrast to that, however, um, I had to, you know, think about my own teaching and I had to change everything for my class that I teach because it is offered as an in-person class. And so um, had to go and figure out how to take everything that we would normally do in a very discussion-based class and very activity-heavy class and um, make that virtual, just like a lot of people did. Um, but um, everything went really well for the most part. Um, we were able to adapt. The students did, you know, we got through it. Um, the biggest change was just with how they had to do their final assignment. But Gotcha. Rather than being a group project, I had them just do it individually to limit the stress, you know, <laughs> trying to do a group project virtually. Um, but then, um, actually, it's interesting thinking about everything and trying to find the positives is that one positive of this year, if you will, mm -hmm. is that over the summers when I was doing my candidacy exams. Mm. Um, so every program, you know, they have a different way of doing candidacy exam portions of a program. But for us, it's just, it's writing four essays regarding questions that your committee has come up with um, that relate to your proposal. And um, so the positive was that because I wasn't able to go anywhere, it got me to actually sit down and write. And I've, never been more consistently productive in my life um um I've never nothing been like a that. quarantine to to make you <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to get to your work you done not procrastinate as much <laughs> like for sure like had those you know two or three day stretches here and there where I was a little uninspired and had trouble working but for the most part that was actually like one good thing that came out of um having to stay home but then um you know, lastly, um, with the current situation for this semester, again, because I'm ABD, um, I didn't have too much, you know, affecting me in terms of my research uh, because of how it's designed. You know, of course, there's so many graduate students and other researchers who their work was impacted really heavily. But um, luckily, because of the way I did data collection and the way that I had designed my research, um, 
kind of got away from that chaos of having to rethink everything. But um, yeah, so same thing, you know, the students, they still did really well. We adapted Good. to everything. So yeah, that's where we are. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. I I never took... Uh, well, I only took one online class when I was in school and it was an undergrad. And I, I just, I am in awe of all the teachers and faculty teaching online. I mean, you only took one, Bianca? I only took one online class. Man, I, I took several. I took a really heavy writing class online and that's part of the reason why I had to get reading glasses because I like hit that point in college where I was staring at my computer like way too much and it started like actually screwing with me but I'm, I'm I like in-person classes myself but I'm so glad to hear that all in all though you've been able to like power through and like your students have been okay and you've been okay so that's really great to hear. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your process of figuring out where you wanted to go with your career and how you went from art history to pursuing a PhD in art education. You talk a little bit about this in the research and the work that you've you've sent us already. Um, And I think I was in a similar situation when I went to get my master's where I went straight from undergrad to graduate school. So I think that this is something, you know, a lot of people who study arts and liberal arts in college kind of struggle with figuring out that next path, especially when something like arts and liberal arts just lends itself so well, I think, to to being interested in a lot of different things. So can you talk about how that decision process worked for you? Yeah, so there's a very extensive backstory to all of this that I will do my best to say very concisely. Because um, <laughs> um, I'm one of those people who like starts at point A but then goes to A and a half and like I, before it's busy, you know. I love it. Um, <laughs> so, anyways, the long story short is that I actually started college as an environmental studies major. Did yeah. I know this? Probably. I talk about it all the time. Uh, (laughs) Oh my gosh, I don't remember that. But yeah, so when everything like really got into me thinking about what I wanted to do with the career and where I wanted to go to school and what I wanted to study, I actually originally, originally wanted to be a history major, not art history, history. And that's because it was always my favorite subject in school. Um, You know, you know, a lot of people in K through 12, they think history is boring, but I didn't. I really liked it. <laughs> um, and so first I wanted to be a teacher. Then I was like, no, I don't want to be a teacher. I want to work in a museum because it's still an educational aspect, but I get to like work with things every mm-hmm. day, you know. And so that's what I wanted to do for a little, really long time. But then when I was a junior in high school and I was really getting into the college search, I had that little freak out moment of, oh, I'm never going to find a job with a humanities degree. Like, what am I doing? Can't do that. Gotta we've all, we've all. <laughs> yeah. Living like, that currently. <laughs> so that um, I got more opportunities for a job. And so that's when I started looking into other things. And I found a school that had an environmental studies program. I didn't actually end up going there, but it's what inspired me. 
Um, and so I only started basing my college search off of schools that had environmental studies or environmental science. Oh. And that's how I found my undergraduate university. I did not even know it existed until I randomly found it on Google one time. <laughs> and, um, but it was perfect. Um, you know, it ended up being, you know, you know, that roundabout way of finding that perfect university for me. Mm -hmm. But anyways, um, when I got there, you know, I was enrolled in the intro course that everyone had to take for the environmental studies major that first semester. But I remember this day very, very vividly. I was sitting on my bed in my dorm doing work for that environmental studies class and just audibly saying, what am I doing? Because I realized that it wasn't because I couldn't do it or I thought it was too hard. It's just I realized I did not enjoy it, you know. Mm. And so I immediately marched myself down to the registrar's office and said, I'm declaring history in my major. But flash forward to the end of the semester when we are uh, registering for the spring, I did not get to register until the very last day at the very last time slot. So needless to say, everything was full <laughs> because I went to a very small school, 1,500 students total, you know. Um, and so I only got into one class that I really wanted to take. Mm -hmm. The other three, I just had to figure out like what I could get credits for that would, you know, be meaningful for my degree and get my gen eds. And that is how I ended up in an art history class. Um, and so it was an East Asian art and architecture class. And I was not looking forward to it at all <laughs> because I had always been told that art history was hard and that I wouldn't like it. And, um, and that was told to me by someone who I trust a lot. And I was like, oh, well, if that's your judgment, well, then I agree with you. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, but come to find out, I loved it. And that's when I really discovered that I was a visual learner. Um, and, you know, I already loved history. And so adding that visual component just mm -hmm. made it that much more enjoyable. Um, and so... I realized like, oh, if I want to work in a museum, I can just add this as a second major. And then I have two trajectories that I can take. Um, so I declared that as a second major and ended up liking my art history classes even more. And so when I was a junior, that's when I officially decided to apply for a master's program uh, because I realized it's like, oh, if I'm going to work in a museum, I probably want to have a master's. It's probably going to make my options a little better um, <laughs> finding a job. Yep. Um, so I started doing lots of research for schools and that's how I found, you know, our program at Oklahoma State. Um, and it just so happens that one of my professors at Southwestern knew Christina. And so that's how I like made the big connection. And I knew I wanted to do Latin American art. Mm -hmm. So it was perfect. But then, you know, when we get to Oklahoma State, and I'm in my first year of the program, second semester, when I was in Louise's Art Since 1960 class, <laughs> I was also taking a class for an elective in the education department that was on gender and curriculum, and it was just the best class. I, it was so fun. I loved everything about it, professor, content, everything, and since I was a graduate student, though, like our assignments for Dr. Sidden's class was like way different than what the undergrads did. We just right. did a lot of writing. We didn't take quizzes or anything. Mm -hmm. um, and the final paper that I wrote actually combined the work that I was doing in that education class with what we were learning in Arts Since 1960. 
So that was the first time that I really merged these ideas of art history specifically and education. And it really is what got me to remember and get reacquainted with that passion for teaching that I had. Um, and so I still wasn't set on it because I was like, oh, I've already, I'm going to be in school for six years. I'm not going anymore. I already said I wasn't going to do masters. Ah. Now I'm like, no, like no more. But when we were in Santa Fe, actually, that summer, I spent just about every free moment I could possibly spend looking at art education programs because something in me just kept like le leaning me towards it. Mm -hmm. Like I still didn't know for sure if I would do it or not, but um, I went ahead and decided to apply because I found I found three schools that I ended up applying to. Um, Ohio State was my first choice, but um, I applied and basically it was like, well, we'll see if I get accepted and then we'll see if I get funding because that was a pretty big um, if and or, you know, yes or no was if I was going to get funding. Yeah. But, you know, turns out, you know, I got accepted and I did get funding. And so that is what got me from going from art history to art education was being able just to merge these two disciplines in this mm -hmm. really random creative way. And so, you know, when we're thinking about like that struggle of a lot of, you know, like you're asking, you know, college students in the humanities or liberal arts fields and like, how do you make your choice? Well, first of all, you know, it's like sometimes you've got to take a chance, step out of your comfort zone, you know, do something you say you're not going to do. But then also, you know, just finding something you're passionate about, like that's really important. Um, if something really makes a connection with you, um, you know, sometimes you just, you just got to go for it and see where it takes you because, you know, that's something that's been really important for me, not only as a student, but also with my research is just how important personal experience is getting you to a specific career or program or whatever it is because mm. had those you know really random things not happened I wouldn't be here so yeah that's my really long-winded way of saying um you know finding something you're passionate about making mm -hmm. connections that are interesting to you and just going for it oh I love yeah that. Olivia, I'm so glad you're here. And I mean, Bianca and I have talked about that so much, how we have felt pulled in so many different directions and finding your right path. But um, I love you. I love that you talked about your Enviro class and already forming those other intersections of how you can create and implement just personal interests into this field. And I think that's something really important for our listeners to understand who also feel like they want to dip their toe in the art world, but they do have these other interests. And as we know, that's the beautiful thing about this field is that we have the ability to do that. Um, but I really want to talk about your research and get into it. So can you give all of our listeners an overview of your work? What is it about? And why should our listeners care about it? Because it matters so, so much. Yeah, so in a nutshell, my research is looking at the ways that technology, specifically social media, can be used as a teaching tool in university level art education courses. And then more specifically, which I know we'll talk about later, but um, 
going even further with that is like how this one specific Instagram account called Tabloid Art History can be used um, as the focus of that curriculum that one creates. And then the third component is, you know, when the researcher slash educator can actually like take that experience of developing these new curriculums and learning more about themselves and why they are the way they are as an educator. Because, you know, like I said, it's like so many of my experiences have gotten me here in terms of education. And so it's just like the way you see all of that playing out when you're like switching roles from student to educator. Um, and um, so that's the main gist of my research is thinking about the ways social media, Instagram specifically, can be used to teach students and get them thinking in terms of you know visual culture study and analysis yeah oh so fantastic obviously with us using so much technology in the pod but also in the way that we've been doing our interviews especially during this time i'm just so happy that you know this is the perfect time to like talk about this work so um i read your paper thank you so much for sending that to us but you say, quote, investigates how art focuses Instagram flat platforms, as you said, can be incorporated into the curriculum of these courses in order to benefit student engagement with the process of visual culture analysis and related research techniques and practices as a means to discuss issues related to the topics of diversity and social justice, which we are extremely interested in and hopefully talk about um, diversity and social justice topics here on the podcast. So how do you imagine the curriculum to be formed when there are so many art Instagram accounts that at times it feels really overwhelming? And we know you talk about one in particular, but I'm so curious about how you even got to that point. Yeah, so going back just a little bit to give a a little bit more background. So specifically, the class that I teach is called Visual Culture Investigating Diversity and Social Justice. And what so that's a class. That. Can I just say, like, what a freaking <laughs> class to take. I'm so jealous. <laughs> so um, obviously, it's pretty much exactly as it sounds, like using visual culture to start conversations about different areas and discussion related to social justice and diversity. And so what we do with it is that, you know, originally there was this one curriculum that we follow because since it is a gen ed course, um, I think there are like six, five or six different sections offered. And so like we're all, all the instructors, you know, we're supposed to, you know, we all have the same textbook. We're all supposed to follow the same, you know, assignment curriculum and everything, but we do have a little bit of freedom in terms of how we you know, present the material like we we find a youtube video that we like or something we can bring that in but that was one of the reasons why i chose the, this instagram account specifically is one because of the comparative components right taking mm. this you know perspective of how can we take something that is you know i don't want to say quintessential but like this very stereotypical idea of what it means to study art, mm -hmm. right? Sculpture, yeah. painting, you know, architecture. And pairing it with something, you know, in terms of pop culture and, and really is a way to get students to think about, okay, well, we are interacting with 
different forms of visual culture every single day. And it's like, you don't have to be in an art history classroom to be able to study and to analyze art. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that comparative component is with tablet art history, um, one of my arguments, you know, I think it's pretty clear, but you know, anyone could make their own argument, but, but I see it as a feminist platform. Like, you know, they're bringing in so many discussions of representation and underrepresentation in Hollywood um, you know, for a number of different groups of people, you know, women, people of color. And so with all of that combined, it just, that particular Instagram account fits so well with the curriculum, you know, like Mm -hmm. not only are we asking students to think about how they engage with and talk about and analyze art, but how can we also really get them to think about the ways we can use it to talk about diversity and social justice. And it's just this really interesting way to think about engagement in a creative way. Yeah. In a similar dilemma to what we see in museums on top of that, in dealing with Instagram's accounts in particular, each one in each feed is so catered and curated to that specific person. So how do we know or how have you kind of worked? What is worth looking at on Instagram or is worth even a question to have when looking at social media because it can be very subjective and I think that's also okay and that's probably also part of the point. Yeah so my answer to is there worth yes to both perspectives and let me elaborate. So I think this is a really great question that y'all asked because it actually fits so well with one of the um, lessons that we do in my class um, and specifically in how it relates to this really awesome TED talk that you should check out if you have not seen it already and it's called Art in the Age of Instagram. Okay, um, And so it's a talk given by Zsa Zsa Fay, who is now an independent art consultant um, who helps um, actually develop ways for artists to get a broader audience, working with museums to, you know, get work out there digitally, etc. Um, but she was um, previously the director of digital at the Jewish Museum, and then before that was the associate director of digital marketing at the Guggenheim. And so um, in this talk, what she, one of the main focuses of the talk is that she is describing this James Terrell exhibition that was put on at the Guggenheim a few years back. And she's talking about how, you know, because it's um, an installation exhibition, Terrell did not want anybody to have phones or take pictures or post in any way, shape, or form the installation on social media, the internet, anything, right? He wanted people to go in and experience it, you know, just in the moment. Mm -hmm. But of course, people being people, They took pictures and they posted them on Instagram. And what's so interesting about it is um, like one of the points that she talks about with that is that, you know, with the development of the internet and technology, social media, you know, we have this fear of reproduction and like, what does it mean? And, you know, in terms of not only that, but then also, can we still experience things the same way online as we do in person? And what she finally gets at in the end is that um, 
yes, it is important because what she tells us is how because so many people saw these posts online, it made them want to go see it in person. Mm-hmm. You know, so it actually heightened the um, visitors to this exhibition. And so when we're talking about worth, um, what is worth looking for on Instagram? Well, not only does this platform give artists an opportunity to get their work out there, um, and then give you know the opportunity for their viewers, the audience that may come across it, you know, um, to get them introduced to it. But it can then inspire someone else to go to, you know, a gallery, the exhibition, the museum, wherever it may be. So not only do they have this initial introduction to it, mm-hmm. but it then translates to that in-person experience and you know you can kind of continue that like oh I saw it here maybe someone else will also see it if I post you know that'll get them interested and then you have you know that whole like circle of you know contributing to an arts based you know continuation and supporting artists and so yes there is worth in both perspectives yeah that's so interesting I also think social media has played a a factor in uh, museum intimidation too. And I don't know whether that's for the good or or for the bad, why people are kind of coming to museums maybe for their, to build up their own personal platform or like take a trendy photo. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I don't think it is as surface level as we think, because in a while like that builds up and that becomes a normal entering museum spaces becomes a normal whatever that reason is for, you're in the space and you're going to get something out of that too. So I think there's also that side to it as well. Yeah. Yeah. This is really interesting because I feel like whenever I am in an artistic environment, I, I have this kind of like desire to share that. Right. And I think that it's, it's somewhat natural for a lot of us now to, to want to, take a photo of something that we are enjoying. But at the same time, I feel like personally, I have to consciously think about that balance. So I have to think about like, I want to capture this moment and I think it's, it's worth capturing and worth sharing. But at the same time, I want to make sure that I'm also taking that, taking in the, the physicality of the space and actually learning and having the opportunity to, to see something in person and, and really learn from that and then think about like being in this space with people. And I think that's also something, you know, I'm sure there's going to be a ton of TED Talks and art historians talking about art history in the age of COVID, God. but how, how physicality in art is going to matter and where that balances from from digital to in person yeah for sure and i mean also like you do have to like think about like the artist and like if the artist does say ask you hey i really like don't want people taking pictures well then you should respect that of course yeah but but um you know when we're really just thinking about you know, that idea of, is there a separation between experience? Of course, there's going to be a different experience of something virtual versus being there in person. But just this idea, like, when you're specifically asking about worth, I just, you know, 
it's so beneficial to like getting someone inspired to go there and making that connection that I think is really important. Yeah. And Gianna, I love what you said too about accessibility and, and breaking down that barrier of the scary art museum where you don't feel welcome. You don't see yourself represented. You don't see people who look and think like you and it's scary. And so I, I love that that's also included in this conversation is just making museums accessible from person to person, which is really cool. So in your writing, you talk about, quote, the fear of speaking up in class because of repercussions from a professor. And this is something that Gianna and I have talked about on the podcast. Olivia, I'm sure it's something that we talked about when we were in school. And it's something that Yadika Starfields kind of brought up in his interview on the podcast, this idea of the starving artist as a preferred aesthetic. And what is that kind of preferred way to go about studying your field? So can you talk about this a little bit more and maybe share some of that experience of that fear um, that I think uh, many of us have experienced in the educational environment? Yeah, so background just slightly is that I've always been a very shy, quiet student, you know, like even before college, like I, you know, was never one of the students who like always just immediately raised my hand. I was like, please don't call me, please don't call me. You know, I was that type of student. Um, and it's not because I didn't want to say anything or that I didn't know what was going on. It's just like, I didn't want to be told that I was wrong and I didn't want to like appear like I didn't know what I was talking about in front of other people. Um, and so that was really heightened though when I did get to college because um, the very first class that I took, um, it was really small. There were only 12 people in it. And um, just the way our curriculum was set up was um, first years, we were first years, not freshmen. First years, um, they took a class the week, they started taking a class the week before everyone else did, um, just to get us used to school, you know. And um, for whatever reason, that professor decided that me and this one other student they were just going to pick on the entire semester and, you know, like always told us that we were wrong, um, always made like really snide comments on our papers and just like made us feel awful. And um, it just like literally it's just like they just randomly chose us because like my roommate who was also in that class, I remember like it's just like, I don't understand why she likes you so much, but not us. And like, I don't see how our work's all that different and blah, blah, blah. But anyways, so that like kind of really solidified me, like not wanting to talk in class. And that's from the perspective of me as the student experiencing it. But then two years later, when I was a junior, um, I was taking this other class um, and it was a history class. So there were like all levels of class in there, like freshmen through um, seniors. Um, so I was a junior, but there was a first year in there, and they actually talked a lot. Mm -hmm. um, they always volunteered, uh, excuse me, volunteered to, you know, respond and like 
talk about anything that we were reading or anything like that. But um, there was this one day, it was yeah, like mid semester, and we were reading this book. So naturally, part of class was talking about this book. And so our professor asked us a question. And this student offered to, you know, respond to whatever the question was. And they weren't, she wasn't really answering the question that was asked, but what she was saying was not wrong in any ways. Like she was just talking about another aspect of this book that we were reading. But because it is not what the professor was expecting to hear, the immediate rebuttal and the only thing that he said was, what? No. And I kid you not, no exaggeration, that student never came back to class. And I can guarantee you it is because they were so upset and like embarrassed because that had happened. And I just remember like seeing that happen and knowing how I would have reacted if it had been me. Mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't have gotten out of the class, but I probably like quite literally would have had like PTSD from it, you know, um, because I was already so anxious in that situation to begin with. And so that, you know, just kind of became the norm for me. Like, I'm still that way. I really don't like talking in, when I'm in the position of a student. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because of that, um, when I started being the instructor, like the actual instructor of record, not just, you know, a TA, you know, mm-hmm. behind the scenes type situation, when I was the instructor and I was the one leading these classes is like I have no problem at all getting up in front of people to talk you know and give presentations but if I'm sitting in a desk and you call on me like I've actually started crying before because it made me so upset you know mm-hmm. so because I've had those experiences when I'm the educator I will never call on a student you know like I will never be like hey Sarah like what do you think about blah 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 mm-hmm. you know if I am asking just a general question to the class about whatever it is that we're talking about, you know, I will wait, you know, you know, count to 30 or something. And usually somebody will respond, but you know, if it ever happens that somebody doesn't, well then, you know, I'll, you know, give them little hints like, Hey, maybe you could think about this and Mm -hmm. then that'll spark something. Or the other way we go about it is, um, you know, so this class really is designed to be a very interactive small group activity, a small group discussion type of class. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we've had to like figure out different ways of doing that this semester, but um, we made it work. And um, so that's something that's really important when we're talking about, you know, like being in an educational environment and offering your voice is that, you know, just making sure that you have more than one way for participation to take Mm -hmm. place, you know, because it's like, that happened with me when I was an undergrad. It's like participation was such a high percentage of our grade, but professors pretty much for the most part, like their idea of participation is how much do I hear your voice in class? And so I got super low grades, you know, in my participation 
And so even though I got really great grades on my actual assignments, you know, I would get B's in my classes because I didn't quote unquote didn't talk enough. Mm-hmm. And just having those experiences, you know, it's like really gets you to think about and put yourself in the shoes of a student and understand that it's like, just because someone isn't saying something doesn't mean they're not paying attention or that they don't know what's going on or that they didn't do their reading. Sure, of course that happens every now and then. We've all yeah. been there. We've all been tired and dozed off. But um, <laughs> <laughs> sure, you know, but it's like if some if you're reading their work and their work is doing what is asked and you can clearly see that they're engaged and you can see that, you know, if you do ask them to work in a small group, you can see them talking with their peers. Like, why would you not see that as participation? Like, mm-hmm. you know, and so again, that's just like a really big component of, you know, my research is also thinking about, you know, how your own experiences as a student like, get you to be the type of educator that you are and how do you weave that into your teaching? Yeah, I, yeah. I love this. I think that I think everyone has had an experience like that. And I, Olivia, I I think I'm like you a little bit. I, in undergrad, you know, I was never the student who spoke up, you know, unless I was, and unless I was absolutely sure of myself, if I was really right. sure that's, that was the right answer, I was okay. And I, I feel okay talking in class. I'm not afraid to talk in front of people, but it was the fear of, repercussions from an instructor and at Oklahoma State you know I I rarely had an instructor that I didn't like and I think when I started the graduate program I was terrified terrified that I wasn't at the right level that I wasn't going to be able to do it and then when there were people in our program who were able to form thoughts so eloquently and so quickly I and I can't do that I need I need to sit and kind of think about the question and think about my words coming up because I'm I'm sure in our seminars classes I just like would word vomit all over you know everyone's session and so I I I think that everybody has that difficulty and I remember especially being so frustrated with one class in particular where every week we had to turn in a kind of written response to our readings for the week and we would turn in our responses the day of class and then two days later once we had finished our discussion of the readings we had to write basically an entirely new assessment of the readings and and for me, it was frustrating because it was an assessment based on what the professor had told you, not what you took away from the readings in that first assessment, like what you were really thinking about. But to get a better grade, you had to write down what someone else wanted you to hear from that. And so I think this is so interesting. And when thinking about art, especially in every single lesson, you know, you're always talking about someone is going to see something different than you are. And that's just, that's just how the world works. And that's why it's great. So I'm really excited to see how, how educators too are are reacting to your curriculum and your work and, and how 
all of those responses will fit together. Yeah, so moving right along, Olivia, you were already talking about kind of restructuring that traditional model, but you talk about that classroom environment in your work, and you say that you were not able to view art history as an ever-evolving field, and therefore a field where critiques and questioning should be encouraged. This may seem like a surprise to a lot of people because the visual arts seem so fluid to us. So can you explain this idea a little bit further for people who may haven't studied the arts and where this problem really came from in the classroom? Yeah, so what I am saying with this um, in terms of my, it's, on, it's my perspective, right? It's my opinion is that, um, so when I was in my art history classes, you know, it's like when you wrote an art history paper, you wrote an art history paper, you know, like, I don't know how else to explain it, but it's just like, you know, you, you, you picked a work of art or an artist and you wrote about it. You did visual analysis, you gave some back historical background, and then you made an argument and you did research that helped you support that argument. But then when I got to my, um, my current program, I was introduced to all of these new research methodologies that I had never heard of before. Mm. Um, you know, so when you're doing art historical research, you're doing art historical research, but um, in education and then the social sciences, um, there, there are just so many other methods that I was introduced to that I was just like, what? How is that accepted as research? No. <laughs> um, and so my two examples that I'll give, um, which, because they were the most impactful for me as a student and also like getting me interested in this particular um, research focus um, are autoethnography and arts-based research. And so autoethnography, pretty much what it sounds like. Um, so rather than doing an ethnography of you know, a specific group of people, um, you are doing research about yourself in relation to this experience. Um, and then arts-based research is um, really, really cool. It's really interesting. And it's this idea of where it's like, not only are you doing research with you know, like other sources of you know, scholarship, but you are also actually creating art as you're doing that research. Mm -hmm. So that experience of making the art also acts as a source. And it was just That's so interesting learning. to me. Yeah. Um, and so um, because I had just been so accustomed to this very straightforward idea of what studying art and writing about art was, um, it's really what got me thinking about, you know, the different ways that we can get people excited about art and working with it and that, you know, you don't have to be studying sculpture or architecture to be studying art. Like you can, like, of course we have like film studies and so people are working with TV and television, excuse me, TV and movies, but, um, you know, we don't really think about using TV in art history very often, mm -hmm. at least just not from my experience. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I remember one person, my 
junior year actually wrote something about Game of Thrones, but that was like the only time I'd ever heard of anybody using, um, you know, TV or film in their work. You know, and not it that had I had to be seen Game it. of Thrones. <laughs> well, yeah, but that was like 2014, so it was like the height of the it. Height, you know? Yeah. And but, anyways, um, so with that, you know, when I was introduced to these new research methodologies and like finally being able to see that you can do research with art and a visual component in just these really creative ways. That's what really got me thinking about, you know, how we can get students to interact with this curriculum and, you know, thinking about, you know, getting away from this, you know, again, quote unquote, traditional idea of what it means to study art and, you know, finding ways to apply that to every single visual component that we work with and interact with in our everyday lives. I love that. I love that you were also like the case study for your own like research, which mm -hmm. is just so cool. Um, I also just feel so lucky that you're here just for my own personal benefit. And um, as you might know, I haven't gone on to do a master's program because I wasn't certain what path I wanted to follow, just being tied to studio art, art history, art education, museum studies. So it was like, which one, which one? <laughs> like, so, but I love that you, you know, you, you have found a way to incorporate it all. Like you can have it all folks. Like <laughs> you write about learning from one another in the classroom. And that's something we've kind of been talking about throughout um, our chat today. So that professors and educators are, are learning from their students. And I think right now there is socially a big divide, but since leaving school and kind of working throughout some internships and now entering my career, I think there's also a lot of interest in these kind of generational evaluations. So uh, this is something <laughs> that kind of gets on my nerves a little bit, this idea that boomers and Gen Zers, they just can't get along. They have totally different learning and working styles. Like, it's so hard to communicate with one another. So how do you imagine letting students teach the teachers and how can that socially impact us beyond just thinking about the arts? Yeah, so when we're thinking about, you know, this idea, like thinking specifically in the context of, you know, college courses, because that's where my research mm -hmm. is focused. Um, but, um, you know, when we're talking about my, my course in particular, it's actually designed in this approach. It's called Community of Inquiry. So it's actually intended from the get-go for like everyone to like have this opportunity to learn from each other. Because um, that's part of the, this component of identity that's really important to the course is that, you know, everyone's experience life in different ways. And, mm -hmm. you know, everyone has something to offer to the class itself, but also to anyone else, you know, out in everyday life that can help you, like, learn about something new or interact with something in a way that you didn't realize beforehand. And so when we're talking about, like, being in a classroom and having a very specific like, curriculum or a pedagogical approach, 
Um, so something that's, you know, very important to me is, you know, ideas of feminist theory and feminist pedagogy, specifically intersectional feminism, right? Making sure that you're doing everything you can to have an inclusive classroom and you're doing everything you can to think about every perspective and how can I make this classroom comfortable mm-hmm. for all of my students, whatever their background may be, whatever their experiences may be. And so, you know, when we're talking about education, you know, once again, like, you're thinking about both, you know, a college classroom or a K through 12 classroom, we have this, you know, idea in our society, this very stereotypical image of, you know, formal or industrial model schooling, you know, everyone goes to class, they sit at a desk, you listen to the teacher, and you write notes and you take tests, and that's how you're supposed to learn, Mm -hmm. which, sure, that's how you have to go about teaching and learning in some fields, but that is not the case for every single field, especially humanities and fine arts, you know, it's like, part of the learning process is talking through things or having a project, you know, that you're able to apply a critical thinking and creative thinking process to. Um, And so, you know, if we're thinking about like how we're developing a curriculum and all of the different ways that we can incorporate new tools into our teaching, well, it's like, you know, technology is always being developed, like new things are being presented to us every single day. And a lot of those are specifically directed towards the use of, you know, in an educational setting. Um, But even if they're not, like people find ways to use them, right? Like social media, for example, that was not designed for, you know, using in a classroom, but so many people have found ways to do that. And so when we're thinking about like the separation between like different generations, like of course that is one of like the biggest, you know, points of conversation is like, oh, well like the older generation, like that's how they understand school is you sit and listen while I talk, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But you know, when we really think about it, it's like the further we get, it's like Gen Z is becoming the majority of the educator, right? We're, you know, slowly like seeing them phase into like being the the largest um, population that fills that um, pers- uh, position, right? Mm-hmm. And so they have grown up with these really, you know, significant developments with technology and they're finding these ways to use them. And so like, of course, you know, like we're talking about like you can't just have someone sitting in a chemistry lab and say, hey, do whatever you want, because obviously that's like, <laughs> dangerous, you know, <laughs> you know, so like, that would be a situation where like, you have to just, you know, listen to the person telling you what to do so that you can learn by that process following along with their instructions. Mm-hmm. But if we're thinking about, you know, humanities or um, fine arts in any classroom where you really do have more freedom to present to your students this idea of informal learning, Mm -hmm. right? So the idea that you are learning with everything that you do, you don't have to be in a classroom to be learning, right? You don't have to be an apprentice or be working in an internship to be learning. You know, if you're being very aware of the ways that you're interacting with everything that you do in your everyday life, you're learning from that. And I think that's, you know, one of these, you know, 
really significant things like when we're talking about you know the current times especially um and like we can't be in the classroom a lot of the times and you know just having to be really creative and think about how we can get students you know to rethink their interactions with you know whatever it may be that they come into contact with and you know so in my case you know rethinking what it means to interact with social media and not seeing it just as something that you post pictures and videos on but something that you can actually use to learn about art and learn about analysis of that art and then also you know how do you use this platform to talk about issues of social justice you know and really important topics of everything that's going on you know and um and we see a lot of that right so many instagram accounts are actually dedicated to giving resources to people like you can donate yeah. here here's this book you can read here's this artist you can support here's this um you know small business that you can support and you know it's just like really thinking about that merging or like reconfiguration of formal versus informal learning is what we should like one of the ways we should really be thinking about education in terms of you know teacher versus student you know it's like everyone is always learning from everyone and mm -hmm. if you are in the position of the educator like whether you like i should sit it that way like let me like if you are in the position of the educator you are always learning from something from your student like you can't i can't say how many times you know we've been talking about something and i'll have a student you know, say oh well i did this this and this or i see this this and this and i'm like wow i would never even have thought about it that way you know and so it's like really showing how you are encouraging your students to also provide their experience and just like how important that really is that's awesome so yeah, Olivia, going back to social media and the merging of kind of high formals of learning and also everyday investigations, let's go back. Let's talk about tabloid art history run by three current and former art students based in the UK. Tabloid art history places images of pop culture next to their precious analogs in art history. More poetically, their Instagram bio states, for every picture of Lindsay Lohan falling, there is a Bernini sculpture begging to be referenced. <laughs> Although this account is of course quite humorous and plays into museum or art main culture that has become increasingly popular in recent years, how were you able to first see the complexities of these visual comparisons and what compelled you to think about bringing new forms of visual culture into the classroom? Yeah, so I was actually introduced to tabloid art history by Bianca. Um, if it wasn't for her, I probably would not have never even knew that it existed. Um, I remember very specifically the day she talked to our ornament class about it. What, was um, it? <laughs> what were we talking about? Well, it was right before class started and we were just all sitting in there getting ready and you just said hey guys have y'all heard of this account called tabloid art history and we're like no and you were telling us about this one post that was comparing um uh, beyonce's video at the louvre to the painting of josephine and napoleon oh my god 
And so then, so you read the quote, like the caption that they had, and then you showed us the the post. And so I remember being like, wow, that's really cool. But I didn't really think too much about it. I did follow the account. And so I saw their post. <laughs> but, um, you know, it wasn't anything more than just like a very oh, cool, unique, you know, account mm-hmm. um, for me to see. But um, so when I got into my program now, um, the very first semester, I took this class called Reimagining Research Writing, which is also um, one of the places where I first learned about um, autoethnography and um, arts-based research. And so the point of the class, or one of the main points of the class, was actually getting us to think about what we wanted to do for either a thesis or dissertation research. And um, like originally when I came into the program, I thought that I wanted to study I was really interested in how art history is taught. So I still had that like kind of frame of mind, but what I thought I was gonna do was like go in and like observe different, specifically introductory survey art history courses at different universities and different courses with different instructors within the same university. Mm. Cause I just wanted to see how different people approached teaching this very, you know, kind of always taught the same way type of class. Um, but it was in this reimagining research writing class that I really started thinking about tabloid history because um, with it being a social media account, I was really thinking about that idea of interaction and experience. And so initially my idea was to like do this really cool kind of abstract kind of out there dissertation about like what it is to like be experienced having the experience of learning about art via like the touch of a finger you know and um so that's what I was thinking about first but then um when I got into my second semester and I really had to start thinking about okay what am I going to do with my research um so I was teaching the same class the visual culture investigating diversity and social justice and um So because of the experiences that I had as an undergraduate and master's program, you know, being really traditional, um, part of that traditional perspective was that, you know, computers were completely discouraged in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Like you were supposed to take notes on pen and paper, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, so I, I taught my class that the first two semesters. I was like, I don't want you to have computers unless I specifically ask you to get them out for an activity or something where I need you to look things up. Um, but it was always pretty clear how um, that caused like a, like a tension and kind of an anxiety in the classroom. Um, and so I had to do this other assignment where I was in a research methods class. And so we had to go, you know, take field notes, um, just, just to get the experience. But I was actually observing this other art education course where it's actually designed that they're supposed to be like working with technology, like the entire time. And it just amazed me how much, like how focused all the students were, like they were using like every second to like actually work on their, Um, assignments. And so it really got me thinking, hmm, what would happen if I actually encourage technology in the class versus, you know, discouraging it. Mm -hmm. And um, so with that, um, the class, even though it's an art education class, it's also offered as a second level writing credit. 
Um, so students do a lot of writing um, and um, so they write four papers, but then they also do what are called, they're called journal assignments. Um, mm -hmm. But it just so like that idea that, you know, doing a little bit of writing in any capacity every day really helps, you know, improve someone's writing. And so I was thinking about all of these things together and that's when I got the idea. I was like, oh, you know what? How can I incorporate tablet art history into this? And specifically thinking about, oh, this would be a really cool like additional component to these journal assignments because not only would they be writing, but they would also be doing visual analysis and kind of doing like research, you know, in a way. And so I got this idea and I told my advisor about it. And she's like, yeah, no, that's, I think that sounds really cool. Um, so then I went and talked to my supervisor for the course and I told her, you know, hey, um, I have this idea that I want to do for my research, but it would mean me altering your curriculum a little bit. Mm -hmm. and, you know, just a little bit, like everything's still the same. I just want to add to it. Mm -hmm. um, and so that summer, which was spring of, excuse me, summer of 2019, um, I did an independent study with my advisor where that's what I did that for those six weeks was um, reconfiguring all of the assignments and the presentations to incorporate tabloid art history. And then I sent them to my supervisor for final approval. And she was like, yeah, I think this looks good. Um, go ahead and go through with it. And so what we do now is rather than just having a prompt that they write about with their journals, is so we start off just thinking about visual analysis. And so they go and they find a post that's on tablet art history and they just have to analyze it. And so for example, one of them is find a post and anal analyze it through feminist theory. And so they can take that however they want and the process, they, they show their process. You know, like they, why did you choose this? How do you see it representing feminist theory? You know, how would you incorporate this into an exhibition? And then as we get further, they actually start making their own tabloid art history inspired comparisons. I love it. And so, um, for example, the first one is really broad um, and it's just find two works of visual culture and talk about some aspect of social justice, you know, so they can think about anything that's important to them. And so, for example, I've had people, um, I've had students, um, I had someone compare um, the Powerpuff Girls to the movie poster for Hidden Figures, and they're talking about, you know, female empowerment and, you know, how, like, women, you know, can do all of these things that, you know, we don't see them represented in, right? Female superheroes or female scientists. And then I had someone else compare, um, they were also talking about women's rights, but they were talking about it from the perspective of sports, which was just like, whoa, I never would have thought about that. Mm -hmm. They compared this painting from the 1800s of a woman playing tennis to a tabloid image or paparazzi photo of Serena Williams at a game. And so they talked about, you know, like the differences between like what women could wear, because, you know, it's like for this big old heavy dress from the 1800s and a hat versus, you know, um, form-fitting clothing that's aerodynamic mm -hmm. and um, all of but these she things. still gets criticized for. Right, right. Like you can't wear a tutu because blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, and so as we go on, you know, that's what they're doing. Like we have different themes. Um, so each of the journal compares to um, whatever theme we're talking about. 
um, related to diversity and social justice. And then my favorite part um, is the very last one, where what they do is they go back and they take every single comparison and every single post they analyzed and they put them together to make a collage. And it's this way of them not only being able to see how their comparisons progressed and so they can see how they were actually engaging with it, but it has this added component of like that gives them a chance to see like their identity and how that influenced them because um, you know, it's like when they actually go back and look at them, they're like, wow, I always talked about women's rights or I always focused on people of color, um, you know, and um, this idea of representation. And it's really cool um, because they have to make this work, but then they also have to get a title for their collage. And I think one of my favorite ones, I can't remember it verbatim, but it was like a look into the subconscious mind. And I was just like, so cool. Um, and it was like how sh uh, the student, um, you know, really paid attention to how their experiences as, um, you know, a woman of color and how it um, led her to like having these different interactions with art and how much, you know, she didn't realize it, but she always gravitated towards those posts or um, making comparisons that highlighted, you know, mm -hmm. the people who had the same identity as her. And so, yeah, that's where tabloid art history comes into play because, you know, it's, the course is visual culture. It's not art history, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. but giving them an opportunity to see that, you know, anything can be visual culture if you can make the argument for it and mm -hmm. you can apply critical thinking, visual analysis and creative thinking um, to how you are approaching these works and how you can use them to talk about really important issues. That's, Gosh, that's just amazing. so freaking amazing. Like, try not to get like misty eyed right here because I'm, I am really thinking about, you know, I have that perspective of you know, coming from a studio background and my direct colleagues and peers being in the studio program and them feeling that intimidation when they're thrusted into the art history classroom specifically. And I feel like through that methodology of teaching, you're not just setting up so many students up for success. Um, but there's a reason that certain students, I think, go into studio rather than art history. And then when they're thrust to kind of change the ways in which they're thinking, like put on your art history half, like take off your, your hat that you can think and you can feel and you can do whatever you want. Um, I've seen that real um, emotional and mental like shutdown. And I've seen that be like really detrimental too a lot of students. So that is just fantastic. Um, but Bianca and I have spoken about the challenges of an art history classroom where each story in history is more complex than time allows for. We have to learn about the masters of art history. Like we get it. They're important. We need to know it. Um, but unless it's through individual research and kind of like you've talked about, you know, sometimes that is implemented into curriculum, but it, it's a lot of times, unfortunately, I think presentations get left as an afterthought and not a lot of people pay attention to those. Um, so when less quintessential examples of art get brought up within lectures, they just kind of, you know, at that point, it's just, what are we really learning here? What are we taking away from this? So um, although we have also, you know, seen and participated in productive change, 
we have also mentioned that in order to bring these intersections of pop culture and high culture into academia, that really does call for a change in curriculum. So I'm just really curious about your thoughts on that. I mean, I know you're already kind of telling us what you're doing, but. <laughs> yeah, so um, we're thinking about that. I, you know, kind of just reiterating, you know, just this idea that, you know, getting not just the students in your class, but getting anyone to understand that you don't have to be in some art history class or an art history major to be able to understand the impact that art has. You know, anyone can go to, you know, a museum or an exhibition and, you know, whatever that work may be, I feel like, you know, it's I'm, maybe not everyone, but a really large portion of the population would be able to say, yeah, like that work affected me in some way, you know. Um, but the other way to think about it is it's like, think about when you're watching the news, right? Um, and so that's something that we talk about a lot in our class is, you know, it's like, whether you're thinking about it or not, the news, that's a form of visual culture, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. it's something that's being presented to you via TV, or um, if you're on social media, like you see news stories posted all the time. And so, um, but when you're thinking about pop culture, you know, I think that's, you know, one of the really great ways that you can get people to really start thinking about this is because, you know, like when you're thinking about um, music videos or, um, you know, like quite literally tabloid images mm -hmm. um, and thinking about how all of these celebrities are posting like very specifically designed representations of themselves or some aesthetic to their social media accounts or you know thinking about how um, a music artist um, makes a set design for a concert you know it's just like thinking about and getting students to understand you know anytime you're applying visual analysis you're not you don't you don't realize that you're doing it a lot of the time because you're, mm -hmm. you're always thinking about it um you might not necessarily be sitting there writing down oh like i think this person did this because of this or this <laughs> relates to this you know you're sitting there thinking like wow like i really like that maybe it's because there were complementary colors used but you know you're not like consciously thinking about it but it's still a way for you to understand you know like how art has made an impact in that specific situation. And so pop culture is, you know, and getting students and anyone, you know, everyone in general, just to think about, you know, what it means and the presence that it has. Um, and just really using that as kind of, you know, the starting point for understanding what it means to study art. And then that can lead them to finding something else. You know, maybe they're really into maybe they get really into a post that they see on social media and it's this work of art from a specific artist. Well, that could inspire them, you know, to follow the artist and learn more and more. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, Olivia, I just found your writing as a whole just so refreshing for that transparency and that, that personal perspective that you have as not only the teacher, but as the learner as well, and just being so aware and inclusive of those both sides, um, you know, of that classroom environment that can be like super scary and traumatic for a lot of people. I'm like, right now thinking about like, all the traumatic moments I had <laughs> as a student, like, it took me a really 
long time to like find my voice. And like Bianca said, like, I don't always speak up in classroom environments e either up until my senior year. Um, so I want to thank you so much for being here. Um, but I want Bianca to ask our last fun question. <laughs> in honor of our colleague from grad school, Gianna and I, well, Gianna really, really called it the best get to know you question. So for our friend from grad school, Olivia, what would you put in your flux kit? So I've been thinking about this and I, <laughs> I have a response, but I couldn't decide if I thought it was a cop out or not. <laughs> but this is, this is what I would put in a flex kit. So when I was thinking about, okay, so flex kits are supposed to be, you know, this really random assortment of ways artists have you know, come together and like someone can interact with, you know, seemingly insignificant, excuse me, insignificant objects, but, you know, having this option to like have it at, you know, your fingertips, but also using it as a way to learn, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we have different like manuals and stuff like that in a flex kit. So I was thinking about this from the perspective of like me being an educator and like thinking about how I would involve my students in like a flux kit project. Yes. Um, and so one of the assignments, it's really an activity that I have my students do. Um, I call it the name play project. And um, every semester, um, at the third week of the semester, I believe, is when we introduce it. So they get a piece of construction paper, and they have to write their name on it. They can do it however they want to. Um, but every single class, they have to add something to it that relates to what we talked about. So it can be a doodle. It can be a single word. It can be a quote, um, you know, anything they want. And they have to put the date next to it. So they can remember, you know, associate it with a specific topic. And then, but that's all that they know. They don't know what it's for until the end of the semester. And so then at the end of the semester, on our last big discussion day before they start working on their final projects, is we go back and look at them and we tell them, you know, it's like a way for them to see how we all were in the same class but we all have our different story of how we interacted with that class. And so I think that, um, you know, it's a really, it would be a really interesting thing to like have a flux kit of like a journey through an art education class. And, um, you know, like whether you made like little booklets or something of that, but then also, you know, giving students an opportunity to like make their, you know, those comparisons that they're making for their journals and put that in there as well. And so you're like getting people an opportunity to see, oh, well, you know, I can also learn something from social media and I can, you know, always have this at, you know, my fingertips and, you know, just really getting a flux get together that gets people to think about like, how do you record your story and your interaction? I love it. So <laughs> um, everyone sign up for Olivia's class and you, <laughs> you can build a flux kit. I love it. Olivia, before we let you go, do you have anything that you want to plug? Do you want to tell people where to follow you? Do you have anything exciting coming up you want to share? Um, in terms of exciting, um, well, I'm just going to be writing for the next, you know, a few months. So don't have anything <laughs> fun with that. Ex 
extremely fun going on with that. But um, yeah, um, I'm on Instagram. Um, I'm the only person with my name. So if you just search for my name, you'll find me. I can't remember what my Instagram handle is off the top of my head. Um, we can link uh, it. We can tag you. Olivia's in there somewhere. Um, yeah, so that's about it though. Awesome. Well, we will link all of the things we talked about with Olivia in our resources page. We will link that TED Talk. So hopefully everyone can watch this awesome TED Talk. Olivia, thank you so much for being here. I'm just, I'm so excited for everyone to hear this. And I think moving forward for us too, just thinking about how, how we on the podcast can integrate what we talked about today to make everyone a better learner and share it, for, you know, and learn from everyone across the board is really exciting. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank y'all. I enjoyed it. All right, guys, we will talk to you soon. Bye everyone.